I grew up in a small town in the Ottawa Valley, and although we did not have a proper theater, all of the surrounding communities did. Pembroke had two, Eganville one, Renfrew one, and Armprior one. And this isn't counting drive-ins. All were within a half hour's drive of where I lived, and over the years, I frequented them all many times. Three of these theaters had the same name, the O'Brien Theater, named after the lumber baron of days gone past, M.J. O'Brien. For Simpsons fans, M.J. O'Brien was like Montgomery Burns, but in the 1920s. This is a man who tried to bring the NHL to Renfrew, after all. The O'Brien theaters were old, crumbling places. They were from an era when a cinema house looked like an actual theater, with ornate designs on the walls and ceiling, velvet chairs, a heavy draped curtain edging the screen, sometimes even covering it before the show to dramatically open as the lights went out. One time, in Armprior, at the O'Brien, they were doing a special movie night. They would be showing films from the year the theater opened, old black and white silence from the 1920s. But the special attraction wasn't the films. It was that they would be accompanied, live, by a pianist. And not just any pianist, but one who had played along with films all those decades ago. This was the 1980s, so having someone from the 1920s there to perform and talk about his experiences and recollections wasn't completely unimaginable, but it was rare. And it was the sort of opportunity that would not likely repeat itself. That night at the theater, I was certainly the youngest one there. Most of the patrons that night were old enough to be my grandparents. The night was really for them. One last chance to experience the films of their younger days, the way they were intended to be experienced. Live, jangly piano music improvised over a flickering Harold Lloyd film. I spent as much time watching the people watch the movie as I did staring at the screen or at the piano player. It was incredible. After the show, I went to speak to the piano player. He seemed surprised to see someone as young as me there, and I thanked him for the show and commented on how well he played. I said it was too bad that there wasn't a Laurel and Hardy short on the bill that night because I think his style would have suited their films perfectly. He smiled and said I knew my stuff. I walked back to the car with a smile on my face that didn't fade for a day. To have had such a night, such an experience, something that has stayed with me, something I know I will never see again. Perfect night, of course. Because I love old movies. Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of the podcast. And as promised last week, we have something special in store. I am absolutely sure that everyone has been sitting on the edge of their seats. Holding their breath. Waiting in anticipation. No Rocky Horror references, please. But I was just... No. I just thought... No. What if I would... Absolutely not. Just don't. Okay. Okay. You win. This time. As I was saying, Mm -hmm. we've got something special. When we were planning things out originally, we wanted to use the ninth episode to either look at a foreign film or a silent film. And in the end, we couldn't decide, so we're doing both. 
a silent film made in Germany, released in 1920. Of course, we are referring to the all-time classic and perfect example of German expressionist filmmaking, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Now that's what I call a compromise. We are all about compromise. We should have called this podcast, I Love Compromises. I like it. Let's start the rebranding process immediately. However... That would leave our listeners in a bit of a spot. Well, and we do have listeners. Cool film fans from all over the world. A truly global audience is experiencing our little podcast. We may not have thousands, or even hundreds, of listeners, but we do have listeners from very far away. Farther than Poland? I don't even need to look at a map to know that Australia is farther away than Poland. We have Australian listeners now? That's excellent. It really is. But hey, you know what? You don't have to just listen. You can do so much more. You can totally like, subscribe, and share. Hmm? That's a cool thing you can do. Or you can get in touch with us on the socials. Tell them how, Sam. You can find us on the Facebook. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. The Instagram. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. Or you can send us a good old-fashioned email. I Love Old Movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. But while you're deciding, definitely hit like and all that. And if you prefer audio-only podcasts, we are available on a number of sites through our hosting on Anchor. Anchor is one of the places you can find us. And Spotify. Google Podcasts. Breaker. Radio Public. Stitcher. And Pocket Casts. So wherever you want to find us, there we are. Now, we should probably mention next week's episode. Hype it uh, one more time? Obviously. Okay, so next week is our 10th episode spectacular. This is the episode where Sam and I, as well as some very special guests, will debate what actors belong on the Mount Rushmore of horror movies. We've already discussed a few of our guests, and now we have another one to mention. Right you are. Our last guest for the 10th episode spectacular is Mallory Jacobson. Mallory is a film scholar and podcaster from St. Paul, Minnesota. She co-hosts a podcast called Movie Lovers, in which she and her partner force each other to watch movies they've been putting off watching. They take turns picking the film for each episode, and no vetoes can be used. Don't even think about trying that with us. I promise nothing. They discuss topics both silly and serious, and the show is something that everyone can enjoy. We're really looking forward to chatting with Mallory and getting her picks. I'm betting she has some good ones. Oh, for sure. So Mallory will join Adam, Addison, Nikki, you, and I for next week's show, and it is really going to be something. Can't wait. And lastly... Yes? Our show has typically began with a cold open, where Sam and I have talked about our own personal narratives and how film has factored into them. It's one part nostalgia and a bit of world building and a way to let you, the listener, know a little bit more about us and where we're coming from. But now we're opening it up a bit and asking you if you would like to be a contributing part of the podcast, sharing your own personal history with film. If you've listened to our show, you know how we do it, so it would basically be like that. It is okay if you didn't grow up in a small town in the Ottawa Valley. But bonus points if you did. Well, obviously. So if you would like to do that, perhaps as soon as our next episode, get in touch with us pronto and we will make it happen. Get in touch anyway. It'd be cool to hear from you. Totally. So about the cabinet. Let's do it. So, perhaps we should start this off properly by just admitting that there is no way we can cover everything there is to cover about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari in one 30-minute podcast. The discourse around the film has been going on for over a hundred years now, and there is no easy way to summarize it all. So, we are picking some of the broadest, most interesting points and going from there. And we have learned some things along the way that we will definitely be getting into. I'll say. 
Our director is Robert Weiner. Growing up in Germany, he first got involved with films in 1912 when he wrote and directed Die Waffen der Jugend. In 1933, his latest film at the time, Tefan, was banned after the Nazis took power. Around this time, there was a film company out of Budapest that had been inviting German directors to make films simultaneously in German and Hungarian. Vina took up that offer and made A Night in Venice in 1934. He went on to do work in London and then Paris, where he actually tried to produce a sound remake of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Unfortunately, of his more than 90 films, only 20 still exist today. He is obviously most known for The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and for Raskolnikov in 1923. Vina died in 1938 at the age of 65. Caligari was a bit of a problem for him, as he never made another film that lived up to it, saddling him with the reputation of being a one-hit wonder. Our co-writers are Karl Mayer and Hans Janowitz. Born in Austria, Mayer became a pacifist after World War I. In 1917, he started working at a small theater in Berlin and quickly befriended the theater's leading actress, Gilda Langer. As he was bored with his job, he wrote the script for The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari with Hans Janowitz. It's believed that Gilda was supposed to star in the film, but she died unexpectedly in 1920. Mayer's script made him famous, and becoming a top screenwriter let him work with the best directors in Germany. He worked with F.W. Murnau on The Last Laugh, and he also wrote the scenario for Murnau's Sunrise in 1927. Mayer was also Jewish, so he ended up needing to flee Germany in 1933. He went to England and worked as an advisor to the British film industry, and even became friends with director Paul Rotha. Near the end of his life, Mayer tried to make a documentary on London, but because of anti-German sen sentiments, he was unable to find a producer. He died in 1944 at the age of 49. Janowitz was an officer in World War I, but returned as a pacifist. Not long after the war, he met Karl Mayer, who had a very similar mindset to his own. Mayer suggested Janowitz start working as an author, and they then wrote the script for The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Janowitz later worked on two movies by F.W. Murnau. He is probably best known for The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920, The Head of Janus in 1920, and Zirkus des Lubens in 1921. By 1922, he ended his movie career and became active in the oil business. He died in 1954 at the age of 63. Playing the title character in the film is Werner Krauss. Now, Krauss's story is a bit different from what we tend to hear about German actors in this era. Quite often, the narrative is that performers established themselves in Germany's in the teens and 20s, then fled their country when the Nazis came to power and throughout the 30s. With Krauss, not so much. A bit player on stage, who made a very successful transition to film, Krauss played Dr. Caligari brilliantly and built on that, that success appearing in a number of films, tending to play villainous and tortured characters. Films such as Waxworks and The Student of Prague were well-received performances as well. Far from being a possible impediment to his career, the Nazis coming to power in Germany worked out very well for Krauss. Passionately nationalistic and anti-Semitic, Krauss identified with many tenets of Nazi philosophy and became an important cultural figure under the regime, having huge supporters in Josef Goebbels and Hitler himself. By this time, he was appearing in fewer and fewer films, but the ones he was turning up in carried messages of Nazi ideology and propaganda. His stage work in this time was little different. After the war, Krauss was banned from appearing in films and on stage in Germany, 
his films were banned altogether, and he was forced to undergo a denazification program before he would be allowed to live in Austria. I love that that was a thing. Eventually, Krauss did emigrate to Austria, where he lived until his death in 1959, his reputation being somewhat restored by then, but mostly, he died fairly obscure. That's too bad. Yeah. Krauss is an interesting case in that we don't always talk about artists who overtly collaborated with the Nazis. We tend to focus more these days on the ones who fled Germany and became successful in Hollywood. Krauss was absolutely not that. He was a Nazi who did Nazi work and 100% subscribed to Nazi thought. And his work needs to be viewed through that lens. For sure it does. And this brings the whole cancel culture debate into view as well. Certainly by any measuring stick we would use today, Krauss was cancelled in Germany after World War II ended. He was completely singled out and had his career retroactively wiped out by a new government and a post-Nazi mindset in Germany that was quite rightly not fond of either the man or his actions. It's not like he was a collaborator or a peaser. Mm -mm. He was 100% into what the Nazis were all about. And you just watched this film in your film studies class, right? Right. And like, when we talked about A Birth of a Nation, we were given a lot of information and warning about the racism. We kind of knew what we were getting into with that, but nothing was said about this film. You think it should have been? I think when the star of a film you're looking at, studying, in a scholarly way, wound up becoming Hitler and Goebbels' favorite actor and the poster child for Nazi cinema in the 30s, I think that's relevant. Considering him in terms of Caligari, I mean, the work still exists. It was made. His performance is still great, and the movie deserves its place in film history. But similarly to how we have to look at the work of Bill Cosby, or Kevin Spacey, or Johnny Depp in a different way now, we probably need to view this film from the perspective of knowing what sort of person Werner Krauss was, and would become. It brings the whole argument about ideology and art into focus. Was Krauss, in his soul, an actor first? Or a Nazi first. And does that even matter? I don't know if I want to be in a position to praise or criticize the artistic contributions, acting, filmmaking, painting, sculpture, poetry, whatever, Nazis. And that puts this film in a difficult place. It really does. Obviously, he wasn't a Nazi when it was made. Was that even a word then? But he's still who he was. The nationalism, the racism, the anti-Semitism, it all would have been there. So, a big disclaimer. Krauss is problematic for the reasons we mentioned. So, when we get to pros and cons later on in the show, don't expect comments on his performance to be there. Nope. And that might be the best we can do. I don't want to bury the film, but I think acknowledging Krauss's full story and then not making him part of our considerations on the film, it's something. In the role of Caesar, the somnambulist, we have Conrad Veidt. Caligari was one of his first films, and he wound up working with Krauss on both Waxworks and The Student of Prague before his major starring role in 1928's The Man Who Laughs. The character he played in this film was so visually striking that he actually became the inspiration for the legendary comic book villain, The Joker. But aside from appearing in some of the same films and playing some iconic characters, that's where the similarities between he and Krauss ended. Veit had married a Jewish woman in 1933, right about the time the Nazis came into power, and the two fled to England to avoid persecution. In England, Veit appeared in a number of films, most notably in The Thief of Baghdad, 
but in 1941, he moved to the United States, and his work there led to him being cast in the role most remember him for, Major Strasser in Casablanca. So really, no difficulty in making the transition from silent to talkies for either of these guys. Not at all. In fact, Veidt was the star of the first German talkie, Bride 68. I feel like without having seen Bride 1 through 67, that would have been a hard film just to jump into. You had the same problem with Ladder 49, didn't you? Totally. Casablanca should have been a big deal for Veidt, and he was even the highest paid member of the cast. But his untimely death the following year from a heart attack meant he would never reap the benefits of the success of that film. That's sad. I, I feel like he probably would have turned up in Rope of Sand somehow, if he would have lived. Oh, absolutely. Written by a pair of pacifists, deeply traumatized and disillusioned by the horrors of the Great War, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari began as a commentary on the inhuman brutality of arbitrary and absolute authority, and developed into a piece of work that can be interpreted as critical of the state and its wartime efforts in turning normal men into unthinking killing machines. Authoritarianism is the enemy in this film, and the critiques brought forth by this argument can be interpreted in several ways that the German government was inhumane and destructive to the individual in its war efforts, or that German people are very susceptible to that ideology and are prone to submission and agreement with an authoritarian regime and subconsciously desire being ruled by a tyrant. That's chilling. Knowing what happened with Germany in the 20s and 30s, and how not only Krauss but other members of this production got involved with the Nazis, it's like the real horror wasn't what was shown on screen at all. It was what the writers were implying about the age that they lived in. The framing sequence was imposed upon the writers, which may explain why it comes across so much differently in terms of style from the rest of the film, but also it drastically reduces the impact of the theme of the story. Without the framing sequence, the film world is one where authoritarianism is brutal and leads to violence with the framing sequence, that very implication is turned into the ravings of a madman. In fact, it makes it worse, as it presents authoritarianism as benevolent. When the director says at the end that he knows how to cure Francis, no one else, just him. Exactly. It's a level of implication and darkness that really leads to a wide range of interpretation on a film that is already called one of the most discussed of all time. So the writers were furious about this, of course. Totally. Legal options were explored, and so were public protests, as a way of preventing the frame story from being used in the film. All to no avail, of course. How was it received at the time? Well, that's really a tale of two countries, Germany and the United States. The film was popular in both, and attracted viewers to come to cinemas. The moviegoers greatly enjoyed the film, and critics, especially in Germany, saw it as an artistic triumph. In the United States, things were a bit more complicated. An isolated and isolationist American film industry was not enthusiastic about a German film becoming popular. Attempts to block the film due to its German origins were present, and members of the film industry warned against the threat of a foreign invasion of their industry. Nevertheless, the film endured. And today, the film is seen as being a true classic, a quintessential example of the defining German artistic style of expressionism, and being vastly influential for not only specific films, but filmmaking styles and entire genres that would follow it. We see the influence of Caligari in films with villains who bend the wills of others to do their bidding, as well as in the silent expressionless killers, from The Mummy to Jason Voorhees. Incredible. 
What's the tail of the tape on this one, Sam? We have an 8.1 on IMDb. Mm Mm-hmm. The audience score is 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it has a tomato meter of 99%. Mm -hmm. It can be watched on YouTube or Amazon Prime if you have a Shutter subscription. The film is broken into six acts. And we will discuss those acts one at a time. Act 1. We open on two men sitting in a courtyard. One of them, Francis, seems mad and mentions how he has been driven from his home. A spaced-out-looking woman appears, and Francis refers to her as my fiancé, and this leads him to begin to tell his strange tale. Right away, the story is set up into a memory-play-style framework, and we know we will come back to these two later on. We see the town exterior, the vista formed by a big painting, like a set from a play. Dr. Caligari walks in the town. Meanwhile, Alan, who lives in the town, goes to the fair with Francis. Everyone gets so excited about a fair. So much fun. There are so many amazing angles. The windows and the walls and the streets. Everything is wonky and offset. It's so striking to look at because nothing looks natural, only familiar. And it helps keep the viewer on edge. Caligari visits the town clerk. He wants to present his spectacle at the fair. But what is that spectacle? A somnambulist. Now, at the fair, everyone is having a grand time. The set for the fair is incredible. It is super cool. Caligari presents Cesar to a thrilled crowd. And Act 1 comes to a close. Act 2 starts with a bang. There has been a murder. The town clerk has been stabbed to death. The same town clerk that wasn't at all helpful when Caligari wanted to get his permit to show Cesar. Hmm, how about that? Caligari keeps demonstrating Cesar at the fair. The tale is that he has slept for 23 years, but as part of the show, he will awaken. Caligari is in full P.T. Barnum mode. The world's greatest showman. Of sleepwalking creepshow murderers. Who live in a cabinet. Also, Cesar is kept in a cabinet. And he is a fortune teller of sorts. He answers questions from the audience. That is the act. Alan wants to get his fortune told, so he comes and makes the rookie mistake of asking Cesar, How long will I live? Cesar tells him, Until the break of dawn. Well, that's awkward. Mm -hmm. And that's why you never ask that. Alan, you amateur. Alan and Francis head home, and Alan is attacked in his bed that night and murdered. Act two began and ended with a murder. That's pretty neat. Francis is told of the death. He thinks about what the somnambulist said, almost as if they could be connected somehow. He shares his suspicions with the police, and there's a plan to examine Cesar. Francis and Dr. Olson, the father of the girl that Francis called his fiance, visit Caligari, who permits it. And about the same time, another person gets caught in the act of trying to commit a murder, and it's assumed he is the one that everyone is looking for. That kind of ruined the investigation a bit. We're into Act 4 now, and the supposed murderer says he's innocent. I mean, he wanted to kill someone in the manner of the mysterious murders to deflect suspicion from himself. As far as alibis go, okay, there's no good end to that sentence. This is a terrible alibi. Jane Olson, this is the fiancé, she goes looking for her father at Caligari's. He opens the cabinet, and she runs off horrified. And this leads to Caligari sending Cesar to kill Jane. 
which leads us to a very scary and unsettling scene of Cesar's attack on her. He winds up not killing her, but instead taking her and trying to escape. That scene was surprisingly violent and creepy. He takes her to the crooked, weird rooftops and makes his getaway, with an angry mob in pursuit. Cesar is forced to drop Jane so he can make his getaway. Jane explains that it was Cesar that took her, but Franzas had been spying on Caligari and saw Cesar in the cabinet at the same time. Something doesn't add up. Act 5 now, and the police visit Caligari again and learn that the cabinet has a doll of Cesar inside of it. The old life-size puppet decoy. Whoops. Caligari runs for it, and Francis follows him into an insane asylum. Oh. Is Caligari a patient there? Francis is taken to meet with the director of the hospital, and it is Caligari himself. To say that Francis takes this realization hard is fair. But he gets doctors to help him check the office, and they find a book on somnambulism. Smoking? Meat gun. Story goes back to 1783. And in those days, a sleepwalker named Cesar murdered people while a puppet of him was used to deflect suspicion. Hmm, this sounds familiar. Then they find the director's diary, which details the sleeper's arrival at the asylum. To the director's delight, since he can now uncover the secrets of the actual Caligari. Specifically, can a sleepwalker be compelled to commit murder? He writes, I must know everything. I must become Caligari. For science. Obviously for science. You can pretty much do whatever you want if you put for science at the end. Act 6 begins with Francis and the doctors unpacking the revelations in the diary. Word comes that Cesar has been found asleep in a field. That adds up. They bring him to the asylum and Francis confronts the director, accusing him of being Caligari. The director goes mad and attacks everyone, but is subdued and put in a straitjacket. And that ends the memory portion of the film. We're back to Francis and the old man from the beginning. They're still sitting in the courtyard as he finishes his tale. We see now that they are in the same asylum from Francis's story. But in the memory, the asylum was quite deserted, and now it is full of patients. Cesar is there. Jane is there. And Francis is clearly a patient there as well. Francis flies into a frenzy, protesting that he is sane, accusing the director of being the insane one. He is subdued, and he is put in a straitjacket. Director, who is Caligari from the memory, examines him and says that he knows how to cure him of his delusions. There we have it. No cabinet, no murders, just the insane and fevered delusions of a madman. Well, such actions, such a world, they have to be the work of insanity, don't they? It can't be real. Even the asylum at the end is designed in a, way more straight, in a way more straightforward manner than everything else in the movie. The expressionist sets are all part of the memory tale, not the framing sequences set in the real world. So even the view of what the world looks like is messed up for Francis. Seems like. Okay, time for pros and cons. Okay, my pros. Number one, the impact of this film cannot be understated. Its role not only as an expressionist masterpiece, but also as a proto-horror and post-Melier science fiction make it a critical moment for both genres. While the story and its presentation are undeniably weird, this is a film that inspired so much of what would come after it, not only in Germany, but beyond. It's good we still have it, if only as a reference point for everything that would come in its endless wake. 2. The Expressionist Design of the Sets 
In some ways, the film reads as a stage play set to film. The sets and flats are a huge part of that. Made of paper and with shadows painted on, the sets are beguiling and odd, difficult to feel comfortable in. They suggest familiarity, but in exaggerated and unrealistic ways, and the effect is powerful. My favorite was the main set of the fair. The use of staircases and different levels of elevation creates an illusion of depth and distance that was incredible to look at. And number three, the abduction scene where Cesar took Jane. This scene was, in a word, terrifying. The performance of the actors and the camera and lighting work create a moment that must have been very upsetting to viewers at the time. You aren't safe in your own home, the sequence not only suggests, but demonstrates. This is pure nightmare fuel. My cons, number one, there's just not enough Cesar. Um, he's a very compelling character in the film, and we don't get to see enough of him committing the foul deeds that, uh, that drive the narrative. Two, the ending hasn't aged well. From already having to negotiate through the memory story trope, only to be finally confronted with it was Franz's, who was insane all along, and the entire tale is just his tortured imagination. It felt like a bit of a cop-out. A way to mitigate the horrors of the tale by saying it's okay, it's not really true. It's just the dream of an insane man. Because, of course, no sane man could dream up a tale like this one. 3. It's a small, claustrophobic world that is created in this film. The camera shots are very tight, the camera never moves, and the shot selection is not especially varied. While this is certainly a result of the utility of the technology at the time, as well as the filmmaking style of the era, it's not a look that ages well, and I can see it being a barrier for some people to watch. It's easy to uncover articles and platitudes claiming the film is an all-time classic, but it's tougher to realize that it's tougher to realize that based upon watching it. The film doesn't thrust its greatness upon the viewer. The film was not even especially successful financially when it was released. But with the perspective of time and decades of analysis and consideration, we know what Cabinet had brought to the art form. But sometimes you just want a film to be as easily accessible to a viewer as possible. This is a dense watch, and a hundred years after its release, it might not be for everyone. And that's a shame. And is this a watch? It is. Of course it is. It, it has to be. Even if it was only a historical document. But it's so much more than that, and it should be seen on its own merits. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One, the sets. They were just incredible. All sloped and everything had crazy angles to it. Plus, long shadows were littered everywhere. They immediately set me on edge and definitely creeped me out during the film. Two, the hospital capture scenes. First, Dr. Caligari is grabbed, put in a straight jacket, and thrown into the hospital room. Afterwards, the exact same thing happened to Francis. By then, we had already gotten the reveal of just it being his fantasy, but the way the scenes mirrored each other perfectly really drove the point home, and I thought it was a cool visual. 3. Cesar. Just everything about him. His presence was so creepy and off-putting. The scene where he kidnapped Jane was absolutely terrifying. Seriously, I was scared just looking at his face when he was unconscious in his box. My cons. 1. The tinting. I get the feel they were trying to go for with the colors, but it just didn't work for me. 
While I was watching, I couldn't help but think that some scenes would have been so much better if left in black and white. To me, it would have made the shadows and wonky sets pop a bit more, and be even scarier. And I have seen a black and white version in my film studies class, and I thought it was just more effective. 2. How dark the film was. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely loved all the shadows, but sometimes it was a bit much. With all of the quick scene changes and the fact that it never seemed like it was daytime, I would occasionally get a bit lost and have trouble understanding where exactly a scene was taking place. 3. The Framing Story It was an interesting twist that the whole thing was Francis's elaborate fantasy, but it honestly kind of took away from the rest of the story. I think it would have been an even better film had it just been left that Cesaro was just an unstoppable killing machine. They should have respected the writer's wishes and not changed the film. Yeah, that, that's so true. Um, and do you rate this as a watch? Absolutely, it's a watch. Okay, then. Uh, you know, I, I think we wound up leaving more unsaid than said, but that's the nature of tackling a film like this. Absolutely. It's not a film that should be taught in a class, but a whole course should focus on this film specifically. I would take that course. Yeah, me too. Next week, though, is our big 10th episode with all the guest stars. Be sure to check that one out. We will be here, and this is one you don't want to miss. And in the meantime, be sure to tell us what you thought of this episode, or the film itself, if you've seen it. Leave us a message in the comments below. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, don't keep it to yourself. We are not a secret. You can let people know all about us. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might enjoy discussing 100-year-old film masterpieces as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Sound effects used for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, come from freefx.co.uk. Images are found through the Creative Commons. And our theme song, Burning Bridges, comes from The Crux.